0: Unless you were raised like this, unless you saw this as a child and you understand it, check your view of normal at the door.
1: Something that we all need to understand is no, there are things that we can do to prevent these things.
0: There's a subgroup that comes in every day. They need to be on a fast track to prison, period.
1: The abuser has a great way of shifting the blame to the other person. And now, the Safety Zone. Welcome, folks, to another episode of The Safety Zone. This is Melinda Ron, and we're here with Mike McCarty, CEO of Safe Hiring Solutions and Safe Ministry Solutions. Mike, we have an interesting topic today, and one that's, of course, always timely about violence. And, of course, your whole background is in violence prevention, and, and whether that is active shooters situations, how do we prevent that, whether it's domestic violence. And now with your up and coming learning zone program that trains people, especially in youth organizations and churches on how to, to know the signs of sexual abuse and predatory behavior. And so there's a lot of facets to violence, but, but we're gonna talk about that today and how you even pinpoint violence in people. And so Mike, welcome.
0: Good morning, Melinda. Yeah, it's kind of a heavy topic. I think I've just been overwhelmed recently reading a lot here in my hometown area of Indianapolis, and we've got these surging murders, and we're really on track to have more than 200 homicides in the city of Indianapolis this year. And I read something from a a pastor in Indianapolis that per capita— Our crime, our violent crime is higher than Chicago, and I've been pointing a finger at Chicago for years. It's where my wife's from, and I think they've been an utter failure in Chicago, and boy, did that put things in perspective for me this week, and just look out across the country and very polarized, and there's a lot of anger, and um, we're coming out of a pandemic, and we've talked a lot about mental health, and suicide, and suicidal ideations, and isolation, and you just got all this stuff in a mixing bowl, and we're just seeing these skyrocketing numbers of violent crime, but at the same time, the accountability is going the opposite direction, and it just makes no sense to me.
1: You're talking about Indianapolis, and I know that we did a program with Lori, and I, forgive me, I forgot the last name, but just in the domestic violence cases, which of course is violence as well in Indianapolis or in Indiana overall, how do you identify when you're trying to prevent violence? Is there a common denominator throughout all of this? Are there, is there such a thing as violent people that There's red flags. How how do we approach that, Mike?
0: Well, there's so many layers to that question. I think what makes me a little bit skeptical right now is everybody's turning to our government to solve this. And I'm one of these of the belief that when you turn to your government to solve bigger problems, it's never going to work. Look at our Congress. Okay, I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, left, right. Just off the left, just off the right, it doesn't matter where you fall. If anybody looks at our Congress and thinks that looks functional, mm-hmm. you got a problem. There's nothing functional about what's happening there. So, if that is our hope that we're going to turn to our Congress or our state legislatures to solve these issues of violence, it's not going to happen. It's too complex, it's too deep, it's too rooted in. The community, in the family, in everything that's happening at that level, they can't solve this. Your police can't solve this alone. We put a lot of pressure on police. Every time the murder rates go up, police, police, police. And I know there's been a lot of outcry. Indianapolis, where's the mayor? Have the mayor weigh in. I'm telling you right now, the mayor ain't going to solve this overnight. That I can tell you. Energizing the faith leaders is what I'm seeing. And there's, it's been a voice I haven't heard for a long time in Indianapolis or I've been missing it. Them becoming energized and angry, that's where this movement will start. And I've seen these shifts over the years. I think I've shared with you, I was in Washington DC on 9-11, was in a federal building, was supposed to go to the Pentagon later that day. So I saw what happened after 9-11. The pendulum shift was, We're going to make our people safe no matter what it takes, right? So that pendulum goes to safety and security. And then what it's been doing since then, it's been slowly coming down and shifting to the other side. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about reforming the criminal justice system. Does it need it? Duh. (laughs) But it's the extremes that we move to, this catch and release. Let's go from safety and security And then we're going to go all the way to the other side and say we're going to catch and release criminals. And we've did a podcast on that. I think we talked to a police chief down in the Houston area. Catch and release goes back, kills, and so it's this extreme extremes,
1: and we see that in everything. That you can't. We're so polarized because everything seems to be looked at through the lens, right, of the extremes. It's either all or nothing for each thing, instead of really being able to come together as a community, whether it's political or just within your community, within a family, within the church, and really just looking at concrete ways to solve, and irregardless of where it falls <laughs> on the divide, for a better lack of words, but when you have the extremes all the time, I mean, is it any wonder we, we can't solve problems?
0: And the problem is we politicize everything. We do. I mean, if we can politicize a global pandemic, What can't we politicize? Because I'm going to tell you right now, safety and security, that's not a political issue. Mm -hmm. Anybody that doesn't believe that we have a right to be safe and secure, everybody believes that. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is we just keep politicizing everything. You either have to be on the side of lock violent people up or you have to be on the side of nobody needs to go to jail we don't need police we send out social service to intervene and it's just these wild extremes and we need people in the middle to come together and say yes. both extremes are mm, kind of yep. like a crazy uncle okay yeah, um, exactly. neither one of them are healthy yes. and it takes people in the middle people who think for a living right people who want to solve a problem coming together.
1: Exactly. And not having to label it in a political way or not having to, well, I can't do that because that would be the way the right thinks, or I can't do that because that would be the way the left thinks, you know, instead of just looking at answers and, you know, solutions. So the good news is there are a lot of programs, a lot of people that are engaged in that, and like what you and your organization do, that's looking at solution base, that's looking at how you can work with the faith groups, how you can work with the law enforcement, how you can work with business, the schools, and bring that level of safety to the forefront.
0: That's exactly right. We have to be able to say, there are certain types of violent criminals that have to be separated. Mm. And to think that we don't have extremely violent people in our country that that the only solution they're not going to lay on a counselor's couch they're not going to talk about repressed feelings from when they were young it doesn't work with them that's a that's a group of people that have to be separated But I will tell you, foundationally, the program that we started in Nashville, Tennessee in 1994 to address domestic violence that reduced the murder rates by more than 50 percent. couple really key things. One, the community worked together. Everybody communicated. Nobody sat down at a table and said, are you a Democrat or Republican? (laughs) I had no idea. I don't even know if I knew what I was then. I've been all over the place in my life. Yeah. The second thing that was important is we got involved early. We didn't wait until somebody had progressed to the point they had become a habitually violent offender. We started to intervene with them when we first saw signs. The third thing is we got them into treatment programs. And when you look at treating violence, when I'm talking about like a batter's intervention program, There is no magic recipe in terms of we're going to give you a pill. We're going to give you some kind of solution. That's how this country wants to operate. Quick fix solutions doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. I have to have people who have committed these crimes admit to me that what they're doing is wrong and they have the ability to change it. If you'll come to the programs with that mindset We had batters intervention programs. So how the criminal justice system played a part in reducing the murder rate in Nashville is when we built cases on first offenders, they did not go to prison. We don't put people in prison for first offenses. We don't have that kind of jail space. What we did is we put them into programs and said, Mm You are going to participate because we have you on probation for 12 months. So we can force you to do this. I can't force you to believe or change the way you believe, but many of them did because some of them truly thought, I don't have any control over this. I, I can't, I want to control myself, but I can't. And they learned new tools. They learned how to not be violent. And so. The programs when we started used to be like four and six weeks long. What a joke. You're going to take somebody who's believed a certain uh, exactly. way for 25 or 30 years and you're going to change that in four weeks. The programs moved to like 18 to 26 weeks because anybody that's worked with violent offenders or abusers knows you're going to spend four to eight to 10 weeks just breaking through their defenses. Mm. And so it's providing those kind of programs. And that's where when we look at how do we address like criminal justice reform? Yes, there's a bunch of people going to jail that we don't need to be sending to jail. They have addictions. They have other problems that need to be dealt with. But we need to save some space for those people who cannot play by society's rules, and they keep hurting people.
1: And and Mike, in that, you know, did you see when you were doing the domestic violence program, did you see where a lot of these people, was it uh, mental health issues? Was it a history of, of themselves maybe being abused or seeing it in their family? Rage issues where some people have a propensity to rage. Did you see any patterns or any certain... I don't want to say red flags, but almost like a DNA within the, the offenders that you...
0: Yeah, there are some very red flags commonalities. And we. one of the things we started teaching, and I, I did this, we kind of did this internally with our 1,200 police officers in Nashville. And then much of what I did when I trained after I left Nashville, traveling around the world, literally, because it's very... Much the same all over the place. There are some very common type behaviors, especially when in terms of lethality, predicting which offenders might kill. Mm. But I would say some of the common denominators, mental health was not a driver. Do you have people with mental health issues that commit violent crimes? Of course. It is not a driver in domestic violence. It is very much controlled behavior. The media, society... Everybody wants to label it as he came home, she came home, lost it. You right. know, the rage some element. Ki- mm-hmm. You push my button, some kind of mm-hmm. trigger. Right. And I lose control and I hurt you. Simply not true. And the reason I can mm-hmm. say that with a lot of certainty is because I've seen men and women, but predominantly men, who have changed their behaviors based on successful interventions. I've also looked at fatalities. We did fatality reviews. Somebody is murdered. The first thing you want to do after solving the crime is, were there things we missed? We should have seen indicators that we could have intervened and started to see a pattern. I would see things like a friend of mine who later became one of our trainers, her husband, stalking, violence, all these things. But when when they divorce, the court goes, oh, we'll grant you the fact that he's a horrible husband. However, he's done nothing to the kids. So he gets every other weekend visitation unsupervised, two visits. And on the second visit, he doesn't bring the children back, the daughter. And I think she was four at the time. My friend Amy starts calling the police about three hours later. He's playing games, and the police start to look a little bit. But, uh, you know, this happens every Sunday night. We get a 100 calls like this. They're not really looking a lot. Bleeds into Monday morning, and she gets a knock on the door. They had actually... Her ex had taken their four-year-old daughter to a state park, shot her three times in the heart, killed himself. Now, when you digest that, the first thing you think is, what a horrible human. Yeah, he is. But how much control did he put into that? He could have went over and killed Amy. Amy would have been dead, probably would have killed himself because that's a final act of control with violence offenders. Why do you see these suicides happen all the time? Like, I'm going to have the final word in this. I did this, and then I'm going to have the final word. And so in this case, this happens a lot. One of the last cases when I left Nashville was a mother who kidnapped her teenage son from high school. Dad calls me on the phone because he's called our 911 dispatch twice. And he's saying, Mike, she's got our son. I get on my radio. We didn't even have cell phones back then. I get on the radio. I said, patrol cars, this location, mom kidnapped son. Before I can even get to that house, she killed the son and killed herself. And I wake up looking at that boy. And when you look at that, there is so much control in that. It's like, what is the worst thing for a parent? Not to kill that parent. It's to kill the child and let that parent live with it. That's how much control that's, goes to this violence.
1: And that's the it's that whole adage too, where it kind of shifts, the The abuser has a great way of shifting the blame to the other person. So that it it's their fault that that child's gone. It's their fault that they're gone. You know, you made me, you made me do this. I, You know, Every, I mean, what yes. that spouse has to live with.
0: Every victim or survivor that I ever interviewed, the first few interviews was taking responsibility for everything that was happening inside that house. And so... It wasn't just that we had interventions for the abusers. We also had a team. We had three, I think four, by the time I left Nashville, counselors in our unit. That's all they did was work with the the women and or men that were being abused because they had developed belief systems, right? They deserve this. It's my fault had i not worn this had i cooked dinner had i not spoken to this person all these things have been and you know what you asked earlier about some commonalities the commonalities are many of them were raised this way so if i'm raised in a home where i see this it was a light bulb for some of these women that would sit and talk and during an interview and realize mike detective you don't do this to your wife Well, of course, I don't do this to my wife. They didn't even think that men existed that weren't doing these same things at their house
1: because it was normal for them. Very normalized. They grew up, even though you have that internal of feeling that this doesn't appear normal. I don't like it, right? But that becomes your normal. If that's maybe the next
0: guy's worse than this guy, and I used to tell police officers all over the world, when you show up on a domestic check your view of normal at the door. Unless you were raised like this, unless you saw this as a child and you understand it, check your view of normal at the door. Because if you walk into that house and you try to process what you're about to see through your lens of normal, nothing will make sense to you. You'll think this person who's the victim is absolutely crazy. And oftentimes the abuser is by far the most believable person we'll talk to. Yeah, yeah, This is the person who has all the right answers. They're manipulators. And what do you have to be good at to manipulate? I have to know how to talk, say the right things. And too often what happens is we as a criminal justice system, we get manipulated by the people that are perpetrating these crimes Yeah, because they're slick and easy to believe.
1: Yes. It's a lot to take in, but I think the hopeful aspect of what you're talking about is, and is really everything we cover, is that there is the ability to have intervention, and there is the ability to prevent a lot of crimes. And I think, honestly, we have a real mentality, especially in our culture today, that almost like there's something, you know, you put your hands up, something we can do about it. We have a violent culture. And I think that's something that we all need to understand is, no, there are things that we can do To prevent these things, correct?
0: Well, it's absolutely true. You know, I think I get frustrated because getting that message out is not easy. I mean, I don't think the media, by and large, really wants to talk about solutions-driven responses to crime. They want car wrecks. They want the extremes, fear cells. And how many pitches have you put out on deaf ears, right? To me, Just listening to the 20 minutes that we've been talking about this, if I'm an advocate in the community, it should give me hope, hope that, wow, we can prevent this. When we talk to schools on school violence and active shooter events in schools, and we talk about the prevention aspect of this, that the U.S. Secret Service has said, you can prevent these crimes. That is hope. But it takes an investment to get there and what scares me is what i'm seeing from some of the policy shifts that we're seeing that are really leading us down a path for this increased violence why what do they say about if you don't learn from your history mm-hmm. and really as a society history repeats itself it just repeats itself exactly i can remember a young girl probably 19 20, 21, she walked into my office in nashville And she started telling me about harassing communication. And this is really going to date me because it was happening through a pager.
1: Oh, yes. I remember. My kids probably
0: think only a drug dealer ever had a pager. Uh, I didn't have a cell phone. I had a pager. But he would send these threatening, harassing communication. On the food chain of crimes, that's about as low as you get. Doesn't seem like it'd be a real dangerous guy. But when I run his criminal history, armed robbery, violent offenses, he was on parole So I realized real quickly, okay, he's got a propensity and a history of violence. He's capable. We could also probably get his parole revoked with this warrant. We go over. We serve the warrant. He resists, goes for weapons. He had a sawed-off shotgun, a pistol. We were able to get him away from him. Three people went to the hospital, two of my partners, the subject. The next day, I find out he had kidnapped another girlfriend, locked her in the trunk of his car, had driven around, all of this had happened, a judge actually lowered and set a low bond on him, said he didn't pose a substantial risk to society. Even with the history of that violence, why? Because it was domestic violence. He was only hurting people he was in relationships with. Until he didn't show up for court, Paul Scurry, officer, Joe Brogdon, police officer, went to a house, had intelligence that he was there. He was wanted for not coming to court. They come in. Who answers the door? Same girl I've interviewed. She says, he's not here. He's not here. No, he's not here. Can we search? Yeah, come on in. They see a little bit of in a closet insulation, and they look up and see an attic. And as they went up into the attic, they confronted him. He shot and killed Paul. He shot Joe, who fell back through the ceiling. Another officer arrived on the scene and ended up shooting this guy. So in the span of about two months, we went from a guy who was sending harassing phone calls to the murder of a 21-year veteran of the police department, another officer shot, the emotional trauma he's lived with. All of this because the criminal justice system couldn't look at this guy and say, he is a mean, violent person, and we need to separate him. We're back to that today. We're labeling everybody that commits a crime as the same type of person. They're not. Right. There's a whole bunch of people coming into court every day that need help. Yes. And they need services. There's a subgroup that comes in every day. They need to be on a fast track to prison, period, because separating them is the only hope we have to protecting.
1: Mm. It's almost the uh, <laughs> an adage of, of, honestly, just having to deal with reality. I think sometimes we... In our system we don't do that we don't or like you said you don't want to categorize people and then you lump everybody into the same bowl and, it, and it, it's not realistic and it's it's tragic gosh mike there's so much we could talk about and i know we are winding down on time but i think really encouraging people that the real understanding that we need to really grasp is that there is prevention methods there is intervention methods and we need to work together to find those solutions. And so Mike again, thank you for a enlightening podcast and we look forward to our next one.
0: Absolutely. Make your voices heard.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.